Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we lay claim to your promise in Scripture, which says, as the rain and the snow fall from heaven, but do not return there empty and void, but rather water the ground, causing it to sprout forth and grow. So shall, so shall your word be, which comes down on us from on high, never returns to you empty and void, but it always accomplishes that which you purpose and prospers in the very thing for which you sent it. So we ask that you would shower us with your grace and mercy this morning, shower us with your Holy Spirit, shower us with peace and joy. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for this Pentecost Sunday is the lesson from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. It is the very famous story of the first day of Pentecost. My sermon title for this morning is How to Pray. How to Pray. As many of you undoubtedly know by now, the book of Acts was written by Luke, a physician, a traveling companion of Paul's, and the only Gentile author of the Bible. Sometime during the years AD 80 to 90, Acts is unique in that it is the only book of church history in the New Testament narrating the spread of the gospel and the kingdom of God after Jesus' ascension into heaven. He does this primarily through the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Because of the chronology found in chapter 1, we know that Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection for a period of 40 days, at which point he ascended to heaven. Ten days later, on the 50th day, we arrive at the scene and text before us this morning, an occasion we commemorate today, the original Christian day of Pentecost, commonly celebrated as the birth of the Christian church. Indeed, the very word Pentecost comes from the Greek meaning 50. The original Jewish festival of Pentecost occurred 50 days after Passover and celebrated the gift of God's law given to Moses atop Mount Sinai to guide the people's lives in their newfound freedom from Egypt and Pharaoh. The original Christian Pentecost, located in today's text, occurred 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, and as you can see, was the occasion for God's gift of the Holy Spirit, which would now guide our lives and our newfound freedom from sin, death, and the devil. This movement from law to spirit as our animating principle is what Paul will later write about to the Corinthians when he says, we are ministers of a new covenant, not in a written code, i.e. the law, but rather in the spirit. Because the written code kills, but the spirit gives life. You may recall from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, as John the Baptist baptizes people in the river Jordan with water, he prophesies the coming of another, the Messiah, Jesus, who will baptize us actually with fire and the Holy Spirit. Today's account of Pentecost is the fulfillment of that prophecy. It is that baptism of which John spoke. And the liturgical color of the day is red, precisely because it is the color of fire, which is the form the Holy Spirit takes in this morning's text. And lastly, this Pentecost account of Acts chapter 2 serves as a reversal of sorts 
of Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel incident which occurred some 2,000 years earlier and in which God scattered the population of the earth and confused all the human languages due to humanity's sinful and presumptuous pride. Herein God is reversing that situation and uniting, as it were, the languages of the earth yet again. When the day of Pentecost had come, our text opens up, they were all together in one place. What an auspicious beginning. This place is typically taken to be the upper room in Jerusalem, the place they were staying in that city, and the place which had served some seven weeks earlier as the site of Jesus' last supper, at which he instituted the sacrament of communion. So a somber place, reminiscent of death, is about to be transformed and quickened into a place of rebirth and new life. I also like the fact that they were all together. The original Greek here means with one accord, being in agreement and having unity. I don't know that everything that follows is necessarily predicated upon that unity, but look at what can possibly happen when Christians are all together, having the same mind and purpose, and being in agreement. Behold how good and pleasant it is, the psalmist once saying, when brethren dwell in unity. It is like precious oil upon the head, running down the face and the beard. Powerful things can happen when we are united, my friends. Things that presumably can't or won't in the midst of significant division. What occurs next is a veritable feast or smorgasbord for the senses. The ears are engaged first. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The eyes and perhaps skin are engaged next. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them. Tongues are engaged following that. All of them were then filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Wind and fire and the Holy Spirit all collude to yield a rather unruly and chaotic scene of cacophony and emotional charisma. Imagine if that were to happen in here today amongst our staid population. The crowd's reaction to this strange phenomenon is understandable and predictable. And at this the crowd gathered and was bewildered, the text says, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. The strange list you see there in verses 9 through 11 of nations and ethnicities and languages constitutes much of the known world at that time, going from what is now Iran in the east to Rome, Italy in the west. Also, the speaking in tongues here in Acts 2 is a speaking in other foreign languages. Oftentimes in the New Testament, and 1 Corinthians 14 is a good example, the phenomenon of speaking in tongues means an incoherent, ecstatic speech which sounds like gibberish to our ears. In verse 14, you have, in essence, the very first Christian sermon. As Peter opens his mouth, 
to begin to explain theologically the meaning of this strange, bewildering experience being witnessed by so many. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, he exclaims, before going on to quote the Old Testament prophet's book, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. In the last days it will be, God declares, Peter quotes, Because of this, Christians have thought ever since this day 2,000 years ago that we are living in the last days, however it is we understand that, however it is we number them. I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And notice that what follows is a universalism of sorts. Just as all human distinctions have been collapsed in the name of Jesus and by the power of His blood. Remember, there is therefore now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those same divisions have also dissolved as it pertains to the outpouring and the dispensation of God's Spirit. First is gender. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. The second is age. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And third is socioeconomic status. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. There is a leveling. There is an equalizing going on here as it pertains to the gift of the spirit and the gift of prophecy. 2,000 years later, We continue to make distinctions among ourselves that Christ dissolved and collapsed millennia ago. A fact which Paul urgently reminds the Corinthians, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. After some scary apocalyptic Portents in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, like blood and fire and smoky mist, the sun being turned to darkness, the moon being turned to blood. Peter ends on another universalist note of sorts, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This phrase is so true and so resonant that not only does Peter quote it from Joel, but Paul later quotes it from Peter in another universalist perspective in Romans chapter 10. There is no distinction, Paul says, between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. As we remember and celebrate today the gift the Holy Spirit, the gift of fire, the gift of baptism. I think it behooves us to notice that in the text, our human response to God is essentially twofold. In verse 11, irrespective of language, all the disciples are speaking about only one thing, God's deeds of power. We hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. Other translations here render it the mighty acts of God, the wonderful works of God, and the great things God has done. These all refer to what God has already done. In verse 21, people call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. Other translations say, whoever calls out to the Lord for help will be saved. And the Lord will save whoever calls out to him for help. The saying indicates what God will do, namely help and save for all those who 
call out to him from now on in their present situation. Isn't that interesting? Baptized by water, we are forgiven our sins. Baptized by fire and the Holy Spirit, we thank and praise God for what He's already done, and we call out to Him for help in our time of need. First, we recite God's mighty deeds of power, and then we cry out for help for what we need right now. What a model for prayer. We thank God for the past, and we cry out for the present. We praise God for what God has done and we cry out for what we need Him to do now. God, you created Adam and Eve in your own image. I need you to lift my self-esteem and remind me of my inherent worth. God, you fulfilled a vital promise to Abraham and Sarah when they were elderly. I need you to help me now in my own older years. God, you blessed Jacob even though he was a duplicitous thief. I need you to bless me now even though I am similarly unworthy. God, you restored Joseph after he was betrayed and sold off by his own brothers. I need you to restore me now and my own broken family relationships. God, you parted the Red Sea for Israel to escape slavery. I need you to part the chaos of my own life and free me from my own bondage. God, you led your people by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I need the same obvious, direct, and clear guidance. God, you gave Gideon the sign of the fleece to assuage his doubts. I need a similar sign of your will at these, my own uncertain crossroads. God, you gave Ruth and Naomi, Jonathan and David, friendship and companionship. I need friendship. I need companionship in my own life. God, you gave David the ability to compose and sing songs in times of warfare and violence. I need you to give me a song to get me through all this stress in my life. God, you gave Solomon an excess of wisdom, and I need all the wisdom I can get right now. God, you gave the widow of Zarephath bread and water for many days when she was down to her last little bit. I need you to help me make it with my food, medicine, and bills until the end of the month. God, you rescued Daniel from the lion's den and Shadmach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And I've got several lions and several fires all at the same time that I need you to handle. Can you join me, my friends, in speaking about God's deeds of power and then calling upon the name of the Lord for help and salvation? Can you join me in thanking and praising God for all that God has already done and not being too proud to call on Him in your present time of need? Jesus, you forgave sinners, welcomed the outcasts, fed the hungry, cleansed lepers, exercised demons, gave the blind their sight, the deaf their hearing, and the lame their mobility. I need the same, Jesus, on every conceivable level. Jesus, you raised from the dead Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and that widow's son from Nain, and my spirit is as dead as their bodies were. Jesus, you gave courage, vision, direction, and guidance to your apostles. And right now, I need all of the above. I need conversion like Paul, baptism like the Ethiopian eunuch, encouragement like Ananias, visions like Peter and John, accompaniment like Barnabas and John Paul, mentoring like Timothy and Silas, a solid marriage like Priscilla and Aquila, constructive criticism like Apollos, resuscitation like Eutychus, and freedom like the Philippian jailer. 
What you did before, Lord, please do it again. What you did for our ancestors and our forebears, do it for me and my family today. My friends, the next time you are asked to pray publicly in front of others, know that it is no more complicated, no more complex than doing two things. Thanking God for what he's already done and asking God for what you need currently. Thanking him for the blessings he's already bestowed and asking him for what you need now. One, two, that's it. Can someone say thank God for all he's done? Thank God for all he's done. Now say cry out to God for what you need. How to pray. How to pray.